Hello and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and today I am joined by Dr. Robin Miller, who's the Deputy Director of the Health Services Management Centre at the University of Birmingham. He's come all the way to Macquarie University to visit us. And he was introduced um, to me through uh, Professor Judith Smith, who we've previously had on the show, and I'm really excited to welcome you to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So a lot of your research focuses on evaluation and you also look at learning from change initiatives, which yep. I'm not 100% sure that means. So maybe you could uh, sure. start by describing what that is for yeah, us. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. So I guess we, we do evaluations of programs that are trying to transform an element of healthcare or health and social care. So fundamentally, these programs are about starting at one point and then trying to change them into a different set of experiences for people who access them or the way we use resources, etc. Yeah. And I used to be a manager in health and social care services for many years. And what I was trying to do there was to do a similar thing, was trying to change an aspect of delivery and, and experience. So when I became an academic, what really interested me was, well, what are the elements that enable us to do a good change process as opposed to a frustrated change process? And I think the evaluation work is very much focused on what do people assume will work in this transformation? What has actually worked and how they could do it better? And do you have maybe a current example of something you're working on? Yes, definitely. So an example that would be um, in um, England, uh, there's been an issue for a number of years where a small number of people with learning disability have complex behavioural needs. So that might be they've got a mild learning disability, but they committed something like a sexual offence, so they end up going through the criminal justice route or maybe somebody with a profound learning disability uh, who has behavioural challenges because they've got sensory impairments, etc. Um, and whatever the background to, to why they've got these complex behavioural needs, we, we tend to have about 2,500 people at any one time within uh, assessment and treatment units for their, for their behavioural um, conditions. And people can end up staying there for 10, 15, 20 years. Really? Um, and for them, they're often placed away from their family, um, they're more vulnerable, there's been some terrible examples of abuse within those units, although some are very good. Um, and despite the fact there's been a consensus across government, across NGOs, across professionals, that these units and people living there for a long time is a bad thing all round, we've not been able to crack how that's happened. So there's currently a, a policy in England called Building the Right Support in which the government have got a service model which explains how people can be maintained in their local environments and everybody agrees that's a good service model but the issue is how do you make that service model happen in each local area so that everybody who's got a learning disability with a behavioural challenges will get that level of holistic support. So there's agreement on the vision and there's agreement on the building blocks what we don't know is how to implement that consistently in local areas. And that's because it requires health professionals to behave differently. It requires um, providers to deliver a different set of services. It's a fundamental change in the way we conceive the support we provide to these people. And that's really hard to do in practice. So what kind of methods do you use to even start something like that? Do you interview people? Or? Yeah, so it's always mixed methods. Um, and we tend to have couple of aspects. So there, there's usually a, for, a, a formative element. So we try and think about how was the program conceived in terms of implementation and what would happen at different stages. And then there's a summative element of, well, at the end of the program, has it delivered what was required? You often start off by interviewing uh, different stakeholders to say, 
tell us why you think this programme is important and tell us why you think this programme will work in the way that's been conceptualised. So you're trying to flush out their assumptions about the reason we're not doing this currently is X and therefore if we do something differently and um, Y, that will lead to the end result Z. Um, and commonly you find that stakeholders in the same programme have different assumptions that lie behind the thinking. So you're partly trying to get them to share that and to discuss it and then to come up with a final agreed set of mechanisms or programme logic that explain why their different approaches or interventions will lead to the end outcome. So you usually start with that and then you will set out a range of different process steps for their implementation and then you will perhaps um, gather data through um, surveys, through activity data, through interviews, through focus groups, through observations and partly it's dependent on how much resources you have because there's always more data you could gather yeah. that will add insights. But you, you want a number of different data and perspectives that you can then um, compare and contrast so you get the whole picture. And um, I probably should have started with this, sorry, but yeah. you didn't always start sort of in an academic setting. No. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk us through how you came to academia, yes. uh, your personal story, and then maybe we can jump okay, back to some of the more okay, specific. Okay, no, that's fine. So it's, quite a long, it's quite a long story. So I've been in academia for eight years, yeah. uh, working in health service management centre, um, and I've got what I would call an applied health and social care role. So it's very much on that um, uh, sort of interface between academia and, and practice. Um, and before that, I spent 20 years working in health and social care service. So initially started off as a social worker. Um, and my training before that was I actually started studying to become a doctor. Um, um, and so I spent four years studying medicine. Um, and then I fell in love when I was doing a children's camp in America and decided I didn't want to wait to the end of my medical degree um, to um, live with my partner. So much to my mother's disgust, I actually left medicine. <laughs> and signed uh, parental on, expectations. Yes, exactly. And signed on for a couple of years. Um, and if that wasn't bad enough, deciding I wanted to be a social worker was probably even worse um, for my mum. But anyway, so then I trained as a social worker. I think that was because I'd always had an interest in... Um, people who were excluded from society. And when I was doing medicine, the bits that really interested me were the more social aspects of what impact did it have on people if they got to a severe mental illness, or people who were homeless, and the sort of terrible health inequalities they suffer. So I think it was quite a natural fit. So trained as a social worker, uh, and then worked as a social worker, and then moved my way up the, the career ladder of management and then commissioning, which was um, being introduced in the UK at that point. So, What's commissioning? So commissioning is, um, within any healthcare system, you've got to have a process whereby you look at the population needs, and you consider the money that you have, and then you identify what the priorities are for delivery of healthcare services, and then you've got to secure that delivery from your market to your existing providers. So commissioning is basically a way of thinking through that process of planning and oversight and procurement um, that uh, was introduced in, in the UK uh, a number of years ago. Um, so I was a commissioner for people with mental health problems and a commissioner for people with learning disability. Um, and then I went into senior management um, after commissioning, so I was overseeing a whole range of community health and social care services. So my career was very much built on um, partly trying to progress my career and get paid a bit more, but also have a bigger scope of interest, because I like the idea of a system, and once you understand one bit of the system, it then leads you into another 
related aspect or a higher level view. So I've basically progressed that as I went. And can I just stop you for one second and just when, in case people are listening, are interested in sort of that more, um, less academic and more working within their health services, what were some of the things that helped you with that progression? Okay, so that progression. Just working really hard every single day? um, So it's partly hard work, but I think it's partly having an interest. um, And you've got to go on the basis that you, you know what you know but there's a whole range of different issues and opportunities that you haven't yet encountered and I'm always one on taking every chance I can to find out what somebody else does what they're thinking about what their role is because that helps me to identify what my gaps are and it also opens up my thinking in another area um, and I think if you if you try and do that then it, it gives you uh, I guess a value that perhaps people who are a bit more focused on just undertaking their single role or single function don't have. And also I think taking opportunities, and opportunities usually come at a really bad time. So you're usually very busy, you're overwhelmed, you've got a report to write or project to deliver, then something will pop up and you think, oh that's really interesting, but I haven't got time to apply for it. And I think sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and you know do the application at the weekend, da da da, all that sort of stuff. Because those are the opportunities that will give you that added credibility and interest. Um, the other thing for me is I've, I've not had a, as you can probably tell, I've moved around quite a lot because I've never had a really strong vision of what I want to do at the end of my career, but I have a sense of what the next step would be. So I'm quite focused on the next step and preparing myself for the next step. But then when I get that step, I think about, well, what's the step after that? I think that's very sound advice because I think sometimes if you think about everything overall, it's easy to get overwhelmed and do nothing. I have no idea what's going to happen at the end either, but I've got a solid plan for tomorrow. So, oh, that's good, yeah. so I think you have to think sort of two, three years ahead. Okay. What's your next? What's the next step? Because then you can plan activities to prepare you for that next step. And then when you get to the next step, there'll be a other suite of opportunities there that you can go for. Yeah. So I'm quite, um, I am quite goal focused on that next goal. But then beyond that, I, maybe I'm just haven't got the ability to think bigger. Or maybe you just don't know what's going to be there because things change, don't they, quite rapidly. I would suggest you're doing okay for yourself. <laughs> I, I think I'm quite lucky. I think I'm doing quite well. Um, and so then you came to academia after yeah. the commissioning. Is that when the transition occurred? Yeah, so I was, I was a deputy director of a large health and social care organisation um, called the Care Trust. And for various reasons, the political tide changed and Care Trust were no longer seen as being the best vehicle for integrating health and social care in England. So the care trusts were disbanded. So that my, my job was at risk um, uh, as a senior manager. And I'd also always really loved academia. So I've done, you know, I've done a couple of master's qualifications. I've been involved in research on a low level in terms of being a case study site. So it's always been on my radar that if there was the opportunity to do a bit more academic work, then I would take that. So the two came together. My organisation was being disbanded. And then an opportunity came up at the university for an applied health and social care role that was you know a bit of cut in salary but one that I could I could manage and um, yeah and I, I took that and, and I've never looked back since I have to say I, I adore being an academic it's been a great and role. How did you find the transition? Academia is quite a different Very world. different so very so I remember the um, I, I got the job in 2010 which was we just had a general election in England and we had a very unusual thing of a coalition between Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. And I started just when the election was happening. I remember sitting in my office at the university 
and had up um, on my computer, you know, the sort of rolling news and the two leaders announcing and thinking, gosh, what, what a life this is. You know, previously I was managing <laughs> 800 people, you know, multi-million budgets. I never had time to sit during the day and watch this. And then about a month later, reality set in um, when I was asked to go and do some teaching. And I suddenly realised that all these people who'd spent 20 years in academia had been doing something that I hadn't been doing. <laughs> um, and to begin with, I sort of relied on my, oh, well, I, I, you know, I'm a practitioner, I'm a manager, I understand policy. But then what I realised was, well, all the people doing the courses were practitioner, were managers who knew policy. They didn't come to university for me to tell them what they knew. They came to university to find out what was the research evidence, you know, what was the analytical framework. And then I had a bit of a panic I would say being honest um, and then I just put my head down and I read and I read and I talked to people and I would sit in colleagues lectures and I would go to conferences and I would ask those daft basic questions that you think I shouldn't ask this because everybody in the room will know um, and maybe two or three years later I got to the point where I felt actually I'm never going to be a pure academic because I've missed too many years of research to do that but I've got a really good handle on the basics um, and then after that, then I focused on integrated care, um, on commissioning, on personalisation, because that's my area of interest. And I would say now, I know as, mo- as much as most people, as any people do, on those areas of practice. And what does integrated care mean? So integrated care means different things to different people. Okay. Because you can define it. So one of the ways we often define it now is by the, the patient perspective. So if a patient can say, or a person can say, um, I am able to plan the care that I need with the professionals uh, that are required to deliver that care and have the choice and control open to me, then I experience integrated care. But to make integrated care happen, that means we have to get services and professionals and funders to collaborate together so that they are rewarding, encouraging, um, incentivizing people on the ground to collaborate together. Um, and integrated care can work at different levels. And um, quite often uh, in Australia, it's, it's much more focused on hospital care and primary care collaborating together and that's an issue in the UK but we're also much more concerned about health care and social care working together um, and there's a whole number of reasons why we don't do this in practice even though we recognise in principle that's what people should experience. And sorry just another clarification, that's what fine. do you mean when you say social care? Uh, social care, so that is a word that's, that's quite uh, used quite differently. So. Social care services um, describe uh, a whole range of different supports. So the, the, the most narrow field, it would be things like personal care for somebody living in their own home or somebody in residential care or respite care for a family who's caring for a relative who's got dementia or somebody with a profound learning disability. But social care incorporates a wider range of issues such as housing, because we recognise that somebody's social um, experience or opportunities are limited if they haven't got steady housing. Also thinks about employment of people with ongoing conditions, thinks about training, thinks about safeguarding. Um, so in, in England, we've got quite a well-established structure of social care services. Social work is the lead profession in that, and they're often the care coordinators. And then the ongoing social care services are provided by a range of private, independent sector organisations. Um, you've done a lot of work, you, you mentioned sort of on partnership and people working yeah. together. What are some of the things that make for a successful partnership? Yes, no, so that's an excellent question. And, and one of the things I think I've done as an academic is partly I've revisited 
responsibilities I had as a manager and trying to work out why they didn't always go very well. Um, and one of those was partnerships. So I did a lot of collaboration between different organisations and I set up partnership boards who were responsible for safeguarding vulnerable adults or coordinating care for people with learning disability, etc. Um, and one of the things with partnerships is um, we, we often recognise as a problem that there's some kind of fragmentation between the way the agencies work together that means people don't experience integrated care. So you recognise as a problem and then we say, well, the reason there's a problem is because we don't work together well enough. So let's work in partnership and that'll address these various fragmentations that people experience in practice. But then we're not often sophisticated enough to think about well, what sort of partnership do we need? So we don't think through the fact that partnership costs as well as delivers. So we have to spend time getting to know each other, setting up some kind of partnership vehicle, investing resources and getting people to know each other a bit better, to do things differently. So this has got a cost doing all this partnership activity. And if we're not combining the right range of organisations and people, then sometimes what we end up with is not going to actually address that fragmentation we have. So there's something about where we're often a little bit simplistic in our thought. The other issue is when we get into partnership, there's always all parties have something that they really want individually. So we often articulate the sort of great vision of we're going to improve the lives of people in this population, address this inequality, which is grand, but usually organisations come with a, and I need help meeting this target, so I need to get people in my hospital quicker. I need to stop people going to residential care. I need to be financially solvent. And we're often reluctant to share that in the partnership because it sounds like we're being selfish in our motive. But what that means is that we're not often um, honest and open about what we actually need from that partnership. And then some of the tensions comes out. If somebody else seems to be gaining what they want, but we're not gaining what we want, um, and then we can become um, disillusioned and disengaged from the partnership. So something very basic about that premise of what actually motivates us and what do we need to do. When you get more sophisticated partnerships, you recognise it can be both and. Well, it has to be both and, and it's much better to lay it on the table at the beginning so everybody knows what the lie of the land is rather than pretend it's not there, but actually know deep down that's what's going to motivate you to carry on that partnership. That's really interesting because it's so true that you don't want to say those things up front. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I had another question and mm. it's gone out of my head. I can't remember what it was, so I will jump back to something we were talking about okay, earlier, fine. Good. which was about your work in evaluation. Yes. And we were, I was mentioning it, I think it's a really interesting field, yeah. especially working with people on the ground trying to figure out what's mm. happening. And I was just wondering for people that are interested, how do you get involved in that? As an academic, I'm feel, I sometimes feel quite removed from yeah. that space, even though I used to work in it. Yeah. So how do you actively engage with people that are working on the ground and yeah. get that work going? Sure, no, that, that's fine. So I think there's something about, um, you, you've got to think about what, what, what's the value that you could bring to a process and as an academic you will have a really good understanding of some aspect of research methodology um, and often you've got quite a critical mind which means that you can help people to objectively reflect on, on what they're doing and why we're doing it. So I think as academic we can bring a certain rigour and a certain um, level of insight into evaluation process that other agencies don't necessarily have. So there's a few ways you can do it. So for us Sometimes it's getting to know people who are, who are trying to do something different in the health and care system um, and knowing that you're interested in their work and the particular populations that they're serving. 
So they see you as being somebody who would have an affinity and an interest into what they're undertaking. Because if you're spending a lot of your time and energy doing a change process, what you don't want is an evaluating team that doesn't really care about you know, the change you're trying to bring about. You want someone that's got, got a passion for it as well. So getting to know people, and that needs to reflect what you're genuinely interested in. So there's something about getting to know people, and then sometimes they'll phone up and say, look, you know, we're, we're doing this project, we want an evaluator, would you like to work with us on it? So that's sometimes what happens. The second way is that, um, certainly in the UK, people will put out calls for evaluators. So they'll put out competitive calls um, that mean uh, an evaluation team, be it from a university, be it from a consultancy firm, be it from a private research firm, can apply for those opportunities. So that requires understanding where do people lodge these calls. It's developing a partnership like we said before, so that you've got the range of skills that are required in order to undertake those evaluations. So often people will want mixed methods, as we said before, they want somebody, they often want an economic aspect as well as a more qualitative aspect. So it's making sure that either in your department or through your collaborations with other organisations, you've got those opportunities. And the final way you can do it is by, if it's a formal research grant from a national funding agency, it's thinking about you know, are you going to use case study sites? And your case study sites could be areas that are doing something very different, and therefore you can bring in some research money in order to help them understand what their impact is. So, so as ever with these things, it's partly it's putting yourself out in that space, and it's letting others know that you're interested in working in that way, and then then the opportunities will hopefully follow after that. Excellent, thank you. And what do you think some of the biggest challenges or things that you sort of have overcome or you've learned from? Sorry, that was a really bad way of asking about lessons learned. <laughs> okay. um, uh, so, yeah, what I learned, so I think something about, um, so first of all, I think, as, as I said before, none of us know everything and we have to keep on learning. And even if we're very good at one aspect of, of health and social care academia, there's always another aspect that we're less familiar with. So I think there's that constant seeking of new knowledge and being willing to be to be open to new opportunities. I think the other couple of things I've learned is one is self-reflection is always good and sometimes if you feel a little bit nervous about something or a little bit unsure there's a, there's a reason behind that and trying to unpick what is it that made you feel that didn't go very well or feel a bit anxious about doing something helps you um, to, to, to do it better and to feel less nervous the next time. Um, and also I think you're getting data back, so whether you're teaching, whether you're evaluating, get feedback from people about how did they experience your, your input. And it sometimes can you know, be a bit painful. You know, sometimes you it think really you're doing job. <laughs> and they didn't, but, but equally it helps you, because you can only by doing that, only by getting, like any improvement process, only by getting data and um, can you actually build upon it. And the third thing I think I've learned is that I don't want to not do something because I um, derail it myself. And what I mean by that is sometimes you get opportunities and you don't do it because you just feel it's too much trouble or you don't have enough confidence. And I just think now, as I you know get uh, towards my career, I just think I don't want to. I want to make sure I make the most of opportunities. And you've got to believe in yourself, not be unrealistic, but believe in your own competence um, and let others judge whether or not you've done a good job or not. Excellent advice. Thank you. Um, and what is, I, I mentioned before, what is your career highlight? But it's probably hard to say just one. Is there something that really stands out in your mind that you think back and think that was really fun or you got a lot out of it? Um, so a couple of career highlights for me is quite a big question. Is um, One thing I think we, we did was uh, when I was a commissioner, we closed down 
the Longsday Hospital in uh, Walsall, which is an area just outside of Birmingham, where we had a, a few people with learning disability who had spent pretty much their entire life in institutional care for, for no other good reason than they were born to a single mother, they committed a low-level offence when they were a teenager, etc, etc. These people's lives have basically been taken off them. Um, and I was the commissioner working with a multi-professional team who um, set up alternative accommodation options for these people. And some of them only lived six months a year, some of them were still there you know, a decade later. But it gave them, at least at the end of their lives, an opportunity to have their own accommodation, to have that self-worth that made them believe that they could have a house like the mum and dad used to have a house and have some independence and control. So that's something that I was really proud to be part of and contribute to. And the other thing for me was I, I, you know, I did my PhD later on in life. I did it part time. I did have a publication. It felt a lot of work. I did it evenings, weekends, summer holidays. Um, but getting to the Viva, because we do a, a Viva uh, process, and passing that and getting my PhD felt like a real achievement. It is a real achievement. You should be proud of that. Thank you. And one of my final questions was going to be what keeps you going and keeps you motivated, but I feel like maybe that was just answered with that question because I can see a face light up when you talk about your work. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think so. I think well, what, we, what, we, what we do is me is when I've got a genuine sort of, you know, academic interest in things, I find knowledge really interesting. Um, and so talking to people like yourself and, and others is really good. Reading new books, I, I love getting a new book. And if I feel a bit low on a Friday, I'll just buy myself a new academic book so the next week I've got that to look forward to. And I do I know, you know, electronics also very good, but there's nothing better than a hard copy book. So I love knowledge. And also for me I think just that I can carry on contributing to some small degree to this great endeavour that we're all in to try and improve the health and social care of different populations is what gets me up on a Monday morning as well. Mm. Me too. Well, not so much this specific research, but yeah, trying yeah. to hope that you're okay. putting in more than you're getting out is yeah. what I hope. And the book thing actually leads in well to our, my last question, which yeah. is do you have a favourite book or something that's really you've read that's really inspired you? Yeah, so I, my favourite book, I, I do love reading as well, but I think the book that I always come back to is A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. Oh, that's a good one. And I think that is so, if people don't know, it's, it's a book set in India um, and it's the most emotional roller coaster of a story um, that I can remember. Um, and you get to the end of the book and you've gone through the good times, the bad times with the characters. And when you get to the last page, you close the book and you feel you're closing a chapter in your own life as well. And you're saying goodbye to these people who you genuinely care about and who you genuinely feel emotionally connected to. Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Oh, that's a good recommendation. I love that book. It is, I will say to people, make sure you're in a good headspace so it's not a light read. <laughs> not a light read. <laughs> uh, excellent. Do you have any big final messages that you want to get out to the world or the listeners of the podcast? Um, just that it's, you know, the, the world of public health is a fantastic world to be in. Um, there's many, many exciting career opportunities. I would say that what if you're early on in your career, I would say use your, your senior colleagues with their connections and their insights um, uh, to, to your advantage because people will, will often respond really well if somebody comes to see them and you might think well why would they speak to me they're the eminent professor they've got all this international work but at heart you know they were a young researcher as well at some point in their career and most people will show an interest and respond to it and the worst that can happen is someone doesn't answer your email yeah. so go out there speak to people and most people are 
very open and receptive and want to help. Oh, yeah, that's good. There's someone on my list that I've been meaning to talk to and I've been too scared to go and talk to them. So I will go and email them straight Cheers, after That's the great. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming to visit us at Macquarie University. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if people want to come over to Birmingham University, Judith and I are always very happy to host international visitors, so don't hesitate to get in contact. Excellent. And you're both, um, obviously they can email you at the university, but you're both yeah. also quite active on Twitter. Yes. Excellent. All right, and thank you everyone for listening.